have you ever gone back to an old movie, something you thought maybe was a classic, a childhood favorite, something beloved from your youth, and gone back and wondered, does this hold up? Can we do this anymore? Well, so did we. So welcome to You Can't Do That Anymore, a movie podcast from the Hollywood Already Did It team, looking back at old movies and wondering, is this problematic? Would an audience respond to it? Is there any way you could make this today? And if you did, would you have to change some things? As always, I'm your host, Blake Schultz, and with me is Terrence Tatum. Hello, everyone. And joining us today is a writer from Screen Junkies, Lon Harris. Lon, thank you so much for coming. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Good, good. Yes. And we are talking about Silver Street, the 1976 mm-hmm. buddy heist, buddy cop <laughs> comedy. I think they comedy. call it an action comedy Thriller. in its era. It's like, yeah, a, yeah it's, got, it's an action comedy with thriller elements. Let's say that. <laughs> It has more like commas after it than a new person in LA who's like, I'm an editor, a director, a producer, an actor. It's a multi-hyphenate, this thing. Yeah. This is like what would evolve into just, it's content. It's just a content (laughs) movie. Uh, It stars Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. It is directed by Arthur Hiller and written by Colin Higgins. And the movie follows Gene Wilder on a train from LA to Chicago where he witnesses a murder and hijinks ensue from there. So... Let's get into this. Lon, when you first saw this movie, uh, how old mm-hmm. were you? How did you feel about it? Did you like it then? Uh, yeah, I was I was a kid. I mean, I would say seven or eight, and I saw this on TV. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved comedy. I didn't really care about any other kind of movie, like even like Star Wars, like stuff that was really huge when I was a kid. Uh, I didn't really care about it unless it was funny. Like I loved Steve Martin and all those SNL, Bill Murray, anything SNL, Back to the Future, uh, John Candy movies. And like, that was my stuff. So obviously Gene Wilder as a kid, I discovered like Willy Wonka probably was the first thing I saw with him. Uh, You know, all those Mel Brooks movies I was really into. So Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein. So that would have been what led me to this. I don't even remember the context if I sought it out or it was just on TV and I was like, oh, that's the guy. I know him. And I watched it. Uh, I loved this movie as a kid. I thought it was really funny. I was not appreciating a lot of the sort of sexual humor. And I was definitely not appreciating, you know, some of the stuff we'll talk about, some of the more political, socio-political stuff. There was a lot of stuff that was going over my head. I was really enjoying it purely on the levels of the Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor performances. I liked it when... It was adults being silly and, you know, Gene Wilder's doing his very over the top, like screaming and having tantrums and carrying on and being very anxious. And I loved that stuff. So that was what I loved about it as a kid. And it was really only when I got older and went back and rewatched it that I was like, oh, there's a lot. This is a weird, interesting movie. Like, <laughs> I just thought of it as like a, you know, like a silly road thing as a kid. That's, I think, exactly how they build it was they originally were like, well, it's a fun Buddy Rom from Chicago to it, LA. It was originally sold as like a as like a Hitchcock parody, as like it's Gene Wilder and he's on a train and it's the mystery and the intrigue, but with jokes. And they didn't realize as well at the time this was you know relatively early in Richard Pryor's career and it was the first Wilder Pryor team up. So they they didn't know that that was going to be obviously after this. Wilder Pryor as a duo became the selling point for movies. Uh, they made a lot of others together. Yeah. But before that, this was more sold as like a, you know, like a mystery thriller, but funny. And they sold it on the, the Wilder Clayburg romance stuff. 
and that sort of intrigue Hitchcock on a train stuff. That actually kind of helps to have that context, even watching the movie now, because it was my first time watching it. And when I started it, I really was anticipating another Blazing Saddles, which like came out that same year or one of the other right. like bigger comedies they did. And I was like, but this is a slow, like meticulous build. And we're spending a lot of time just introducing these characters in this world right. and what we're doing. So when you look at it that way, where it is almost Hitchcock or Agatha Christie or Murder in the Orient Express, but yeah. with comedy, mm -hmm. It becomes, it's probably not a great example, but it's it's like the scream of slashers for that time. We were like, we're going to make a very right. serious slasher movie, but it's going to be silly sometimes. Exactly. And you got to remember too, you're only, you're not as far out. Like train set thriller was a genre at this time. Like from Russia with love is like thriller espionage elements on a train. The lady vanishes, strangers on a train. So like, there was a context today, and that's one of the things that's really outdated about this movie now, is the whole idea of multi-day cross-country yeah. travel on a train. I mean, I guess there are people who still do this or they don't like to fly or whatever, but it's it's much more rare it's now than it would have been in, it was already a weird thing to do in 76. In 2022, it's very well, far through between like if you yeah. are deathly afraid of flying that's the only you could, way yeah. on this. you could almost drive this <laughs> <You're in your laughs> mind, <laughs> but, you know so it's just like hey, why why are you doing this uh so that that is also kind of outdated whereas it wouldn't have been quite so outdated in 76 and you would have had this it was a sort of a mini genre it's yeah. very reminiscent of the plot point in Who Framed Roger Rabbit when they're like, wait, we don't need highways here. We have the best public transportation in the world in Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah, well, you could take the like, red car for a nickel. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, hold on. That's no, I just moved here 10 years ago. That doesn't seem, we need more highways, no. in it, if anything. No. Uh, yeah, that, I will say also the the LA of uh, of the Roger Rabbit era, it was a little, it was a little more, it was a little tighter. You weren't necessarily going as many, it was like, Santa Monica to downtown and that was just kind of your run and like right. it wasn't it wasn't as going much from, stuff yeah yeah, yeah. you're not going to like true. thousand oaks back then. <laughs> <laughs> right. well when they redo it <laughs> you never would be like hey you want to go see a movie let's go in like Woodland Hills and you're like I don't want to <laughs> I'm good it's too far yeah no that's we won't be doing that Terrence you I think like me just watched this for the first time for the show what did you think? What was your context around it? You, I'm assuming you've seen the other Wilder prior movies. Yeah, well, that, that's what I was going to say. Like, I'm uh, see no evil and hear no see no evil, hear no evil, and star crazy. Like, I'm very familiar with both of those. Like, see no evil was one of those films, even though it's the probably the lesser of their their run. Um, it's I've seen that one so many times when I was a kid because it was yeah. always on. I was like, oh, and I would just catch it in pieces here and there, and like, like, oh, these guys are hilarious. Star crazy. I'm a Sydney Poitier fan too, so like all of that sort of kind of goes goes together. Uh, so I was like, oh, amped. I had never seen this. Like, Let me see their first time together. And I was quite surprised that Pryor does not show up until an hour into this film. And I was like, wait, yeah. he's on all the billing. Like he's everywhere. He's on all the posters yeah. and whatnot. He is the third, like the third person on there. And I'm like, oh, he's not in this film. It's very truncated how much time that he actually spends in this movie. And it's fascinating that from that, all the audience is like, cool, this movie is fine. This is, there's a lot of stuff happening here. I want more of the two of them. Um, that's sort of what I took out of this. It's like, oh, this is where this sort of birth from. And it's always amazing to me because I, I know their history. They didn't get along offset. Like they weren't hanging out or friends offset. So all their chemistry was just done on camera and it was just palpable, which is just amazing. Um, Gene often, I mean, Richard 
is a it's a known drug abuser. So he was always having issues coming to set late and whatnot. And Gene's a very workaholic. Like I'm, we're, we're doing this. But when that camera turned on, magic happened. And so that sort of happened here too. And so when this movie, like you said, for the first 40 minutes of it, I was like, what? Is this a crime drama? Like, what, what are yeah. we doing? Like, I, <laughs> the guy got shot in the head. Okay. And then all of a sudden, Pryor shows up in the back of the car. And you're like, well, now we're on a buddy road trip. What is going on with this film? Then it becomes an action sequence. And I was like, I... I love when genres merge. Like that's some of my favorite stuff if it's done well, but there's some wild tonal shifts that this movie has. It's like, I don't know. It's very herky-jerky. I don't know what I'm what I'm doing. But what makes it all work is that Gene Wilder is just amazing to watch. Like I can just watch him do anything. Like he, his mannerisms, his facial expressions, his like, like Lon said, some of his, his over, his when he manics out or freaks out. I love that type of stuff. Um, we will talk about <laughs> the, the major sort of like, <laughs> yeah. what is this doing in this film? Uh, it took me by surprise because I was like, I don't think this needs to be here. Who greenlit this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that was sort of how I felt because it was my first time. I knew all their other history. I also, I'll mention this too, because I'm sure there's somebody else listening who's like, they're wrong about this being the first prior Wilder movie because I did think about Blazing Saddles, which was the same year. Right, but supposed to be due they to collaborated on the scripts. Correct, yeah. and Pryor and, was supposed to be in there, but right. his drug Cleveland stuff got Little in the way. Ended up uh, the great Cleveland Little yeah. ended up in the, yeah. in the role instead. Because yeah, I definitely had a beat where I was like, wait a minute, but I swore Blazing Saddles was. And I was like, oh right, they're acting together. They and did, they Pryor did write work on the yeah, script for Blazing. Sons. Correct, and there's a kicker that they were also supposed to be the duo for Trading Places, but because yes. of Pryor's drug stuff, that just got dropped off. They they switched to Eddie. Oh, and, and wow, yeah. I wonder if that's also why he's in this movie less. Like I don't know enough if they were like, well, we'll have him, but like we'll make sure that he's kind of at <laughs> the back end. I don't know. I mean, I do think that part of the script, the pitch was the Hitchcockian. Like it's Wilder as the framed man and it's like his adventure. It's his story. And I know that, yeah. And like, I think the the structure thing of he keeps getting thrown off the train and has to get back on the train. That was probably baked in, I feel like from the beginning. So I doubt Pryor was in there that early because you have to like have, he's the adventure off the train that right. gets you back to the train, you know? Yeah. I could, you could dump, there's an early sequence where he meets a woman who, gets him on her like small prop plane she flies him ahead of the silver streak and i guess you could dump that sequence although i like that sequence so. it, it has a lot of like almost rat race moments in it like when he meets yes. the woman who drives him through the town i was like oh this is very much like the you should have bought a squirrel moment a little bit which like mm -hmm. she's just kind of kooky and weird and we just meet all these other like weird characters through it i was like oh this is kind of awesome in a way that we just keep having these things happen while he's trying to catch up to this train but then something else happens and it's yeah. why we're here today um and uh, around the third act of the film richard Pryor and gene wilder are attempting to get back onto the train there are guards looking for gene wilder he's been falsely accused for murder and they wonder how will we get past the guards and gene wilder's first pitch is i have a gun i will simply cause a distraction not a great idea. Probably would not have gone well. But better than the idea they went. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So then there's a, a, a shoe shining man near the bathroom. And in what is actually a very funny scene, because I just love Richard Pryor being like, how much for that? Pay the man. How much for that? 
cave man. That's all great. You get a lot of great Gene Wilder expressions. They get in the bathroom and Richard Pryor's idea is to paint Gene Wilder in blackface and have him hide from the cops via painting his face, wearing a hat and glasses, and listening to a radio and doing some jive talking oh, right. and singing and dancing. And I mean, this... Yeah, that's... It's it's almost like the, the blackface, obviously, on its own level, there's a lot of reasons. I don't even know if we have to get into the whole history of it. Bad on, on its own. Context-free, that's, that's bad. But almost what makes it what makes it so much worse is, the is that is the, the impression. Yeah. He's, he's not only pu putting shoe polish on his face to make him look black, but he's doing an impression of what he thinks a black guy walking to a train exactly. would look like. And it's hideous. I mean, it's that's, horrible. That's a part of like, like Blake and I were talking before you, we, we started and I was kind of just like, well, the, the actual blackface, it's, it's, a, it's troubling, but he's not being demeaning towards black people when he's doing it. So that it's kind of like, all right, that in itself is fine. But when you start doing the jive talk and you're dancing, and you're like, oh, so now you're just saying that that's just, this is how Afro black people talk. And yeah, oh boy, yeah. we're, we're getting into and, some and messy, it, messy, messy waters here. And, and that's it, exactly what the issue with blackface was, was that historically it was a way for white people to mock black people. Correct. And that is now what you, like it's, it, it, in, in every era that has, you know, blackface on tv and we go back and we're like cringing they always think at that time they were like they were they were beyond it you know like in the in the night or in the 70s they didn't think this is offensive like in the 30s when people would do blackface because they were like look richard Pryor's right here right. he's in on the joke and that was what made it feel okay to them at the time just like in the 90s and aughts you'd have like 30 rock or the sarah silverman or like, program who, who, doing like blake similar. and i one of our favorite shows is scrubs a lot of the time they would do racial right. things on there they get away with like well donald's here so it's fine and they would be like well we're not racist anymore we're we're beyond that right. now we've elected obama racism <laughs> is over right. it's okay to make fun of this now and and now we go back and it's still like nah you shouldn't yeah. have done that and it's like that's always the lesson is like even if you think that you're modern and ironic and beyond it like just don't just don't do it it's just don't just don't do it at all yeah and i think that that's the weird part about the scene that we've talked about is just it keeps doubling down and i at first I was like, oh, this won't be that long of a scene. He's going to put it on like a horror movie. I could turn away and I could come back and I won't have missed mm -hmm. it. It doesn't service the story. He did, there's not really even a scene with like the cops and him. He just walks past them like they're not even paying attention. And then Rich, Richard Pryor looks embarrassed in the rest of that scene. When he comes out of the bathroom, I was like, I don't know if that's just him as a person feeling this way or the actor's performance or the director being like, you gotta look embarrassed. It's buddy. part of the joke that, you know, Richard Pryor was trying to teach about a good impression and he's doing he's a coming bad, in with, like, impression. bad impression. Uh, right. Like, you but think it, that's I, what I told you or that's how I act? That's how you Right. Think? He's supposed to be like, oh, he's not doing it well at all. Yeah. But it, the whole thing is such a farce because it's like, well, obviously there's no good way to do it. it would, you know, like, there, <laughs> no. It wouldn't, there's no reality in which he's like pulling this off. It well looks done. Stupid. I see it. Yeah, now. that's the whole joke is it. that it looks ridiculous and stupid. What, yeah. What's crazy about it, though, is like like Blake says, it, it's such an afterthought to the process. Like the whole point is to get onto the train, but he just walks by. It's like, well, then you could have just put on a mask or done yeah. put on glasses, and it would have been no, perfectly it, fine. <laughs> yeah, it's not a plot centric moment. No. It, it is a it's a comedy bit, and it and is. it was one of the 
I feel like just the amount of not not the way it plays today, but just the amount of time that it gets, the amount of time they set it up. It was one of the centerpiece bits of the movie. Like it's they probably thought, one of the ones they pitched around. They were like, yes, "This we're like, going to build around this." this exactly. Piece. They yeah. thought this was going to be the big, outrageous, big laugh scene that was going to help sell the movie. So no, it's not. You could easily cut it out, and plot-wise, you would lose nothing. Yeah. They would just be on the train again, and you'd be like, "They got on the train." Like there's, yeah, you literally could just remove the scene, and it would make no difference. In like season one of our podcast, we talked about Tropic Thunder and like the satirical mm. approach with Robert Downey Jr. and all of that. And we all sort of were like, well, yeah. it's still not great, but at least they're like, they're trying to say something. There's an artistic attempt to do something. The bigger problem was that then we nominated him for an Oscar and we applauded how brilliant it was. <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe the satire doesn't work when we then are like, it was brilliant. <laughs> right. But it, and, and here, I'm like, well, I think that's actually a great example of what I was just talking about. Like, that's a movie that's made from this mindset of, well, I'm not, Ben Stiller's not racist and Robert Downey Jr. is not racist and we're not racist anymore. So we can go back and make fun of how racist people used to be. And I totally, as a white dude myself, like I get that mindset. Like I get how you would think that way because you know what's in your own heart and your right. mind and your intentions, but it's, it just, it, it reads, just doesn't, it, it just it doesn't, doesn't it never play. Reads like it, it's like, yeah. It, yeah, yeah, it never it reads never well. Plays. 10 years removed, you're always looking back like, nah, I was too far, they should have <laughs> Like, yeah. Always. yeah. And then like in the moment, right? Like when I saw Tropic Thunder in theaters, when I was however old I was, I was like, this is really funny. And it is one of those yeah. things where now when I watch it, I'm like, ooh, this is still kind of funny, but we, we did the whole time we yeah, did like this. It's in the entire film. And then we awarded yeah, him. He's we a main character in the movie. And it, it's so crazy, because like, we just won't nominate him for being Iron Man. We won't do it because superhero movies don't get to do Oscar things. Right. But we were like, the comedy blackface could be a nomination. That it's like, well, well hold on. Yeah, a- <laughs> I think we, the Academy it's, it's a- is not understanding. That always that 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 one makes me really uncomfortable because I know who's on the Academy. It's nothing but a bunch of stuffy old white, especially at that point, it was the stuffy old white people. Yeah, so they're like, you know what? You played, black, you played a black man really well. We're going to give you an award, white guy. Like, wait, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, at least award the writers for trying to be satirical. Not, don't be like that actor. He really, that's how I, ooh, like. But yeah. coming back to Silver Streak, I found an article of, the, of Gene Wilder looking back at it from the Washington Post that has a very interesting point of what we were just saying of like, well, did they think about it? They probably thought it was a big joke. And he goes on to say, in quote, it was the one scene I was most worried about. And I thought, well, if Richard doesn't mind putting on the polish, in order to pass as black, it must be okay because he's the teacher here. This was in 2005 when he looked back. And during the read-through process, Pryor became more and more morose while there were calls. And Pryor said to him, I'm gonna hurt a lot of black people when I do this scene. Apparently in the original script, it wasn't a black person who comes in and catches him. It was another white person and just went, that's how they are. And that's oh. what Richard Pryor was like, we can't do that. It needs to at least be a black person that catches him. And says the line, oh, you're in yeah. so much trouble. That's why you're doing this. And it's interesting that both actors at one point were like, I don't know if we should do this. And yet it squirreled its way in. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. I, and it's like you were just saying, Lon, if it's giving you pause, don't do it. If you're ever like, I think that's great advice for any like writer or creator yeah. or anything. Is- if, 
if you're ever sitting there being like spidey sense to start tingling yeah yeah i i I do and i think that that is you know like listen not to go out of our way to pat hollywood on the back but i do think that is something that has changed a little bit like the idea that if somebody on set today were like i think this scene might be offensive you'd hope that and i'm not saying this would always happen no you'd hope that in 2022 there might be some person on the creative directing show running producing level who'd be like hang on let's listen to what this person has to say yeah like those are the changes we're sort of hoping and trying to bring about now i think the world as a whole has sort especially for film has gotten a lot better of of having people that represent the other folks that are in that film on set to to be that call out if you'll have women you have women of color you have all of them like hey that's not going to work. We need to talk exactly. about that scene. We need to twerk twer- that scene. And you can imagine Richard Pryor being on this set, Arthur Hiller, a, a, a white director, almost entirely white, or maybe Scatman Crothers was there, right. uh, a white crew. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he would feel like, well, if I speak up and I'm like, I, I don't really want to do say, this. Right. I don't want to butt the card. This isn't, I'm yeah, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not making the lead trouble. In this. Right. This is now I'm thing. the demanding diva right. star that's making all of these problems and holding yeah. up everybody's work. And, and so, like, you know, like it's not, he wasn't even despite being famous at that point and like a notable he guy. A film you star out, at that point. Like that's this right. Is he didn't have the film. power to be like, right. We're gonna I'm I'm shutting this down. We're not gonna we're not gonna do this. It's you know, always interesting to me, and this is where I, I feel like we, we we haven't done a Quentin episode, but I'm sure we will eventually. But Quentin's <laughs> one of those like you get some folks who how they write or how they do things, and they're like, Well, if I cast Sam to say this it'll be fine. Like no one will, no yes. one will, will complain about, but, but I still think about like, who's writing this? Who's behind the camera? Because of course you have a reason that you keep using these words or keep saying this stu- stuff and like you hiding behind the sheen of like, I'll have Sam Jackson say it or I have Richard Pryor say it. Or yeah. have it gets a little, I, like, he, uh... he's a very a fascinating case. <laughs> and I say this as a fan. I, 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 I love a lot I of also people. am a Q, QT fan. That's why I, I, but I still like weird... when you're watching Django, it, and and it's it's more contextual. I it feel makes like more sense there. I, right. I right. feel like I feel like this. There's there's I there's an argument to be made. But when you watch Pulp Fiction, why? <laughs> yeah. Really yeah. No, like Jimmy doesn't need to be talking that way. <laughs> nope. He's just yeah. talking about coffee and his wife coming home. There's no need. No. And and so that's that's where you know with Tarantino, it's like I, you know I don't want to second guess the guy's a brilliant writer. I I, I respect his work a lot, but. Yeah, wow. Yeah. It's like context dependent. It's like changes so much movie to movie. It does. And then an intention and what the artist is saying and what they're trying to say. And I think that's even yeah. where in this scene in particular, you're like, well, they're not really. And I get it. Comedy at that time was very much just like, make them laugh. If it's got to be extreme and crazy and big and bombastic, make them laugh. But it is I, interesting. Yeah. I mean, but I think it's, it's something that, about the, the 70s too, like this, this cultural moment, like, 10 years ago, if you made a movie about a white guy and a black guy on a train trip together, like that's what the movie's about. It's like mm-hmm. in the heat of the night. And it's like this racist white guy and this black guy have to go on an adventure together. And like the seventies was really the first chance to like, oh, we can just cast diverse ensembles and they can sort of mix it up together. And it's the first time that it's like culturally not right. a lightning rod. And you can sort of do comedies that play around with these things. And it was it was tantalizing and exciting for people at that time. Like we can have these conversations in a movie and we couldn't before. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's just good and bad that goes along with that. You know, like, the, yeah. I think we're seeing both of it in this movie that you could do a buddy movie with these two guys and race doesn't have to be the only correct context. Like, it could also just be about their budding friendship and he's a thief and he's really uptight. And, but I think that, you know, you, you still see the growing pains and they're, well, they're getting yeah, this is sort of what the that is. Opening of the floodgates of when mo- multiple cultures or multiple folks could be on camera or screen together. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like they're going through the learning pains of, of how all of this sort of works and learning on the fly. So some the stuff that they exactly yeah they don't know what they can and can't say at that point. So kind of you kind of do have to kind of give them a little bit of a leeway of like, hey, I, I get the time. You you weren't aware. You you didn't know. Yeah. The first time you guys are yeah. really doing this. And I'm not to be clear, I'm not saying like, oh, they said it was for comedy. That makes it okay. I just think at that time, there was a lot of like, well, we're doing a comedy. It's, it's like, really it's, that was the defense people hid behind. And I'm like, right. it's not really a good one. <laughs> right. And just like the 90s and aughts shows that, that we talked about, like they, they were coming into it with the same mindset. Like, no, no, we're not being racist. We're, we're sending up racism. We're mocking racism. We're making, like, in some ways, the scene is also... Again, I'm not defending, but it's always the scene is also mocking the white cops. Like they're not even going to yeah, look at you're you. You're so terrible they're, at your job. You're not even going to look at this person in right. the face. And, yeah. and all black people look the same, <laughs> all the same. to them. Yeah. They're so not distinguishing that they're not even going to be able to tell. Right. Like that is part of the subtext too. And I'm sure that was on their minds too, as mm-hmm. part of the joke. That it's not just at the expense of the black people that Gene Wilder is impersonating. It's at the expense of these white people too. It's it's sort of we're hitting everybody, and I'm sure that was in their minds at the time. Oh, even today, that doesn't really stand. I out also think yeah. that a part of it plays into that the filmmakers know that at that point in time the audience was primarily white, so they're like that's who we're oh. playing to. So we're not we don't 100. We don't have to worry about like offending or being like. They're here. They yeah. might come in, but our audience were playing to the white folks, and that's, that's no, for sure. And at this, and at this moment too, that it would have been an even more segregated Correct. audience. Not, not legally segregated. I just mean like right. there were movies that were made for black audiences and movies that were made exactly. for white audiences. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, yeah. And, and, right. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty wild. <laughs> like it really is. But, <laughs> So it kind of then begs the question of, because I feel like a lot of people now, and we sort of saw it quite literally happen in the last few years, where we just erased all of those sitcoms we talked about. They're all off Hulu, Peacock, Netflix, whatever the streaming service is, they're gone. And this movie in particular, when I started on Amazon, was like, hey, here's the rating. And the very first thing it says is like, blackface, comma, violence. And I was like... (laughs) All right, so they went with like the old school Looney Tunes approach of giving yeah. me the warning and telling me it's there. Mm-hmm. And I always get curious when we have these movies. Do do you do you guys think there's any reason historically that this is still important today, or did it do anything for the many genres that it's in to like get us there? Or should we look at more something like a Blazing Saddles and go, well, this really was about somebody rising above racism in the context in this movie for all these racial jokes is used for this story where in this movie we're just like that's not that's not okay we're gonna just (laughs) cut that out and throw it away if we wanted to i do appreciate the amazon slope i think at the very beginning i like that it was like blackface oh cool i know what i'm getting prepped for because i had no idea what why this we were we had chosen this one for this but that helped um it's funny I don't think race really matters for this particular movie like i feel like other than that sequence being there you pull that out Richard Pryor being a black man just happens to be that he's a black thief. You could put a you could have put a white thief in there, and that the the context for the rest of the film would have played exactly the same. So I don't think this does anything high or low for race relations 
outside of that that one sequence. I do think that it, I it obviously was the birth of of their chemistry. So I do think at the very least it is important enough that the two of them started their their bond on on screen anyway. Um, from that point on, uh, I also do like genre mixing. So I, I it was cool to sort of play with that. I I don't know. It's the first time I've seen it. Uh, Lon will probably be a little bit more because this is something that he had with his in his childhood. I don't know if this is a film that I would kind of I, I would go back to because I do prefer I like Stir Crazy so much. Like that's so much I think of a better product, and it's more of the two of them, which is sort of the sweet spot of this film. Uh, that I don't know if, if this has any relevance outside of of the birth of Wilder and Pryor for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, if this was, if that was the thing that ran through the whole movie, if there was, if there was a lot of race humor yeah. or blackface stuff, then I would be like, dump it. I'm done with it. There's plenty of better prior Wilder collabs and like, let's watch those. But I, I feel like it, it is, it is a, a largely self-contained sequence. There's a lot of other stuff that's not connected to that sequence that I really do enjoy about this movie. Uh, I think it's a great Gene Wilder performance. I mean, it I think is. that's the number one reason I wouldn't lose it, it is, is because I think Wilder's great in this. Pryor's very funny. He doesn't have as much screen time, but he's very funny in this. He's mm. got a bunch oh, of really steals good it the deliveries. second he shows <laughs> up. The moment he shows up, the movie ratchets up an entire yeah. level in energy and charisma. And like, it's a great, I also like Jill Clayburgh in this. Uh, you know, she's she's the sort of the the the, the female foil. The, she's the one that G. Wilder has to keep going back and rescuing. But she's very charming. She makes a good impression in the first half of the movie, which is important because she kind of disappears the back end. Did you yeah. guys know that that she's the mom of Lily Rabe, like the the actress who's in like oh, really? horror story and stuff? Yeah. That oh, was, wow. Like, oh, Joe wow. Clayburgh is Lily Rabe's mom. Wow. I did not know <laughs> that. All her to the grave. And <laughs> then Patrick awesome. McGowan even is a is a fun villain. He was the prisoner on TV and he's. He's Roger Devereaux, the bad guy. There's a lot of good performances. I think that's the thing that I would feel bad about losing from yeah. this. From, if we lost this movie to history, is that they're all really funny in it. Like the the script has some 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 problems, and I think that yeah. there's a, there's some sequences that do not hold up at all. And I would I would say I think we were talking before the podcast too. Ned Beatty also has a supporting role. <laughs> We think he at first he's he's introduced as a salesman who's, right. who's riding on the train, and it's a it's another like seventies trope, the like horny salesman on the road, the who's like a, chasing the secretary around the desk. Yeah, right, mentality. like a boorish yeah. kind of drunk guy, but but it's not played today. This character would be played as like creepy and a predator and like right. avoid him and yeah. at that point it was played more as like charming or like at least yeah. boys will be boys like you know we all know a guy like that and like oh right. you know he should you know guys will be too. guys it's uh right. it's a weird like i i don't think you should remove this film uh uh so but i, I will say that the women do woman because it's really only one uh it's sort yeah. of the short end of the stick she's very important oh, at the beginning, oh, and then sure. once it stops being about after she, after she gets slapped, we no longer care about that woman anymore. I was like, well, this is a weird way to just sort of dispose of her. She just becomes like, she's for the first half of the movie, she's a character. She's almost one of the main characters. She is. And then she's, you know, she's in the, the damsel in distress. Right. And that's what Pryor and Wilder, their mission is to like rescue. Yeah, that's another it's very, interesting. It's another stereotypical tropey 70s thing that today you would come up with a way to give her more of a yeah. storyline. You know? It was a very of that era story of just like, well, the guy's got to go get the girl and 
it she's she's in the the princess in the castle like it really mm-hmm. is just and except the castle's moving <laughs> um, but it, i also think it's interesting because we talked a lot about like the genres that this did influence and it was they were making buddy cop stuff before this a little bit but you do start getting into 48 hours and even as far as like lethal weapon and these other movies yeah, that yeah. do deal with these race issues and some better some not as better but they're trying and i think it's interesting this movie as a jumping off point to a lot of those other ones especially the more oh, comedic sure. versions and the like sillier heist movies it it really is like a historically interesting movie because you kind of can trace back a lot of comedy crime movies to it a lot of buddy cop movies to it it lands at the centerpiece of when this genre was finding its footing which i think is why you have one very unfortunate sequence in the movie yeah there's a there is there's a 90s movie that when i saw it as a kid who grew up loving silver streak uh die hard with a vengeance i feel like very much is inspired by the dynamic of because mm-hmm. it's the same it's it's the two guys very mismatched personalities don't know each other they're thrown together by circumstance and then they're on this action heavy road trip that's also comedic where they've got to constantly be like picking one another up and finding one another and how do we get over here and how do we get on this ship or whatever and it like it definitely borrows some of the dynamic of this some great, yeah there's some great moments even uh, like they go to the black like they go to his high school and then like the kids high school and it's like oh it's like, like oh, there, there's the stuff where sam jackson's got to save him in harlem yeah like you know like there it, it's definitely a in the, with all within the city of new york instead of on this train journey right. but it's a it's got similar beats and they always remind me of one another those two movies. yeah it's also i think always good to see some of our mistakes in a lot of different industries like it's almost better it's like i said earlier if you are like an aspiring writer or director or anything like and you think about doing something like this go see the times it was bad and wrong and incorrect which will be all of them um (laughs) because because you're not going to do it as well as even like tropic thunder did so what's interesting is because a lot of my point because at that point in time that was new the first time that like you start putting integrating white folks with black folks but like even with i go back and watch rush hour right now and rush hour is a, there's a lot of issues but that's the first time you start putting asian characters with black with black folks so it's a new character that's being brought in and they it is very stereotypical towards asians and i'm like oh i watched that movie now like oh Oh, yeah, it's uh, a rough one. It's another yeah. rough one. They're like, man, I really enjoyed this when I was 10. But and, and it's, again, it's it's what's always fascinating is when they made Rush Hour, they thought of it as this is for we're progressive. Right. This like we ahead. got, we got two all, people of color on as right. the top. That was, I, I, I remember uh, that was like a big thing was like, mm-hmm. it's this Hollywood movie and neither of the leads are white. They're right. both people of color. And yeah. like that was that was groundbreaking was at massive. the time. So yeah, you. Yeah, so you go back now and like a lot of the jokes are stereotype jokes, <laughs> yeah. but it's like, but they thought that was okay because of the good part of correct. We're doing you know, something to move things. It's ahead. just Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan. We didn't right. put Bruce Willis in there. Yeah, right. And then the probably one of the last things I want to touch on a bit is the the success of this movie and like and why it resonated so well. Because when I looked it up, I was like, okay, it made fifty million dollars in nineteen seventy six. That's pretty good. On a $5 million budget, which is like, 
enough to get one Netflix star to show up for a day <laughs> now. Like, and how much of that was just like that? What's incredible about that is it does end on a pretty. I big say that action. is probably like, the just the last twenty five minutes of the film. Yeah, it's like all of that money went to the train engine, <laughs> right. busted into the station, right? Like that's got to be half the budget, yeah. right there. It's almost like we got to make more movies on trains if we want to save money. <laughs> Is it a cheap location? A I mean, here. man. Yeah, but it, that, that, that right. That was how it's a. It's not a huge cast because they're mostly people on the train. And yeah, you a lot of the early stuff is all a few compartments. So I guess that's how they save money on that side. And it's also like 1976 and and like really the early 70s are such a unique year for how audiences responded to movies because obviously like. Gene Wilder was in his prime. He was top billing. People would show up just to see him at that time. Or now, you know, more people will go see Iron Man than they will see a Robert Downey Jr. movie. It's the IPs versus the actors. And the year after this is when that switch starts with Star Wars and Superman and like all of these, like the tent pole movie is about to show up. So it's pretty crazy that this movie just like slipped in and what in like comedies don't do this well anymore. Crime say, movies are usually reduced. The reduce is the wrong word because I like streaming movies at home. But like a lot of movies in this genre are now like an HBO Max movie, a Netflix movie. Oh, sure. It doesn't yeah. have the yeah. same theater worthiness that right. like this clearly did at right. the time. Well, I mean, you you would you would think about if you pitched this today, you know, even if you got two huge stars in the Wilder and Pryor roles, like you take your pick. Yeah, and even if you had the big closing action scene, it would be like, well, you need two other huge action scenes that we could put in trailers mm-hmm. and we could promote this on the backup. Like that would be bare minimum. Like there's no way you're making this, and it's just one big chase at the end right. with one helicopter. Like that. That the other thing I feel like is this doesn't have enough. Like you need what's the franchise like what's how are you how are you setting this up for more and yeah and like that's what we're looking at today that they didn't the mid film which is yeah the, these mid-budget films or these smaller films they don't really get made anymore uh we don't yeah. we don't see them anymore i mean i i love the things like knives out or even death of Nile are still like getting made because they're almost about to get wiped out because those are such a different style of a film that like those little small mid-budget anything that's less than 20 million dollars outside I mean, of Blum, outside of Blumhouse horror I was about really... to say Terrence this is less than most Blumhouse movies right. those clock in at yeah. 8 or 10 million this is yeah. like yeah no, today even... this is a, this is an 80 100 million dollar movie and it's mm-hmm. got like the rock is in the Gene Wilder role and it's got like he's definitely fighting multiple people on Yeah top there's going to be train. several like, fight sequences like one of those times he gets thrown yeah. off he's not going to just try to get back on there he's going to beat the crap out of about 15 people or he, like he ride home. a motorcycle yeah. and fast and furious himself back <laughs> on like it's just like you know we don't and it would also be you know well we're going to be promised like well these two guys are going to have more adventures together yeah. now you know like the movie ends with Ned Beatty being alive and he's like you should come work for me and then it's like oh that, he gets the you know, peacemaker like treatment <laughs> yeah like there's just you're not allowed to make a standalone movie like this anymore everything has to have like, a it button. ends and the characters say goodbye and there's no they're probably never everything gonna has see to have a button and be like hey I'll see you in a week and we when we see what this box office looks like and we do it again yeah, somebody would have to yeah. come and invite them to the Silver Streak Initiative. Monroe <laughs> <laughs> so would have to get off at the end. I'm looking What's at it? the highest grossing U.S. films of 1976. Obviously, Rocky was number one. Yeah. But then right after that, A Star is Born is number two. 
King Kong, that that 70s King Kong is number three. And then Silver Streak was number four. It That's, just wow. beat out it just beat out all the president's men at number Which five. Which is another smaller, but like that's amazing. That's a dude, that that's the type of box office that I like to see because it's all over the place. It's like yeah, you got imagine that as the top five of the year this <laughs> right. year. A boxing <laughs> drama, a, um, a musical. musical, you know, uh, yeah. Look at King Kong, I guess, is the one that would still, you'd still yeah. have. Maybe. Even that, I'm like, oh, well, you know, like those Godzilla Monarch movies didn't. It would, it's true. Okay, they'd Godzilla vs. Kong did all right. That one did I did right. like Godzilla vs. Kong. But yeah, it's a, a very interesting movie that I think still has a lot of historical significance and modern importance, but it is filled with mistakes that we made. Uh, but, you know, I think it's, we can't erase our mistakes. I think it's better to kind of look at it and go, look, we almost made something really, really, really amazing. There's one bad thing in it. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. And at least, you know, it's warned. Like it, it's I, say, right I appreciate there. the warning. That That is helpful. <laughs> it did, however, make me keep watching it and be like, when's it going to show up? Like this I is... immediately was like, yeah. so it's been an hour and they warned me about this and it's still not, oh, there it is. Got it. Got <laughs> yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but thank you guys so much for listening. Lon, thank you so much for joining us. If you've enjoyed the show, you should subscribe on whatever podcast app you're listening to. We also have it on our YouTube channel. There's the subscribe button, wherever it is. I'm not going to point and add it. You know how to use that app. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Hollywood ADI, where we also have our other shows. The main podcast, Hollywood Already Did It, about reboots, remakes, sequels, and why we keep retelling those stories. And coming soon, another Marvel pair-up where we'll be taking Moon Knight and pairing it up with uh, identity movies, duality movies. That's a lot harder to pin down. Normally it's WandaVision and sitcoms and Falcon, the Winter Soldier and Buddy Cops. This one's a little more nuanced, but basically we do the Disney Plus show. We pair it up with a movie in that genre and we talk about the themes in it. I'm at, as always, Blake. Terrence is at Terrence Tatum. Lon, where can the good people find you and all of your work? Oh, uh, find me on Twitter. That's at L-O-N-S. That's the easiest place to keep up with everything I'm doing. And, and subscribe to my podcast, Binge Boys. Uh, that's with me and Hal Rudnick. We just watch a bunch of new streaming stuff every week and then yell at each other about our differences of opinion on it. <laughs> Perfect. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for coming. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we will see y'all next week. Later. <laughs>